Now hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, like Britt said, my name is Paul. It's wonderful to see you this morning. If I haven't met you yet, welcome. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here. If this is your first time with us, I hope you feel welcome here at Sojourn. I hope you felt welcomed by our people. Um, you felt welcomed not just by our greeters, but just in sitting in here. We are grateful for this building, um, this beautiful space to gather and worship, but it's always important to remember that the church is not a building uh, or a place. The, ch the church is not an event to attend. It's a people to belong to. Uh, and I hope that if this is your first time or if you're visiting with us, that you have felt welcomed by the people of Sojourn. Sojourn, I hope that this morning, once again, it's an encouragement for all of us to gather together this morning. We sometimes say at Sojourn that we humbly admit that we're an imperfect church, but that we gather around our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is true. We are certainly an imperfect people. It is only by God's grace that we can uh, live together in harmony and in love. And before I jump into the sermon this morning, I just want to acknowledge that it has been a tough season for us here at Sojourn. It's been quite a week for us as elders. As our members know, we sent out yesterday uh, an announcement that we reached the end of a difficult investigation process regarding one of our leaders. And while I don't need to go into the details of that right now, I only say that to acknowledge that today I am acutely aware of my imperfection and our imperfection as a church and our desperate need for the perfection of God to shine through the strength of God to be manifest in the midst of our weakness. It's been a hard season for me, for our elders, for many of our church coming out of a hard season before that and another one before that. And in many ways, the things that we've experienced as a church have effects that will continue to take patience, love, the care of God, and continued spirit-empowered, faithful endurance in order to see through to healing and restoration. And that's just speaking within sojourn, that's not to mention being in the midst of a culture that is experiencing upheaval in a variety of different ways right now. 
We exist as a church to be ministers of the gospel, celebrating what Jesus has done, what he is doing, joining in his work of renewal and restoration by seeing our neighbors reconciled to God and one another through everyday faithfulness, love, and humility. We exist as a church to make disciples, to multiply parishes, to plant churches. And this is a glorious and a wonderful calling. And sometimes in the real world, with actual men, women, and children, this gets messy. And this is one of those times. I want you to know, Sojourn, that the elders and I are here for you. If you have any questions for me or for any of us, please don't hesitate to ask. Given the, work, given the week it's been, I'll admit that it feels like the fact that I have any sermon at all to preach this morning kind of feels like something of a miracle. But as I've experienced in studying and praying through this passage in preparation for our time together, I hope that God by his spirit would lift our eyes so that we can behold Jesus for who he is and remember afresh or perhaps even hear in a fresh way where our hope really is to be found. So please, as I begin, please pray with me once again. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning standing on your promises. You say to us, Lord, in your word that a bruised reed you will not break and a faintly burning wick you will not quench. Just a few verses later, your word tells us that you are the Lord, you have called us in righteousness and you will take us by the hand and keep us. Lord, I pray that you would take the smoldering wick that is my heart this morning. The smoldering wicks that are many of our hearts this morning and that you would not quench them, but instead would blow on them. Take that small spark and turn it into a flame roaring by the power of your spirit, glorifying you, giving thanks for what you've done, giving us security and hope as we continue to walk on the journey that you've brought us on together. I am grateful for where you are, grateful for where we are, for where you've brought us, for what you're doing in our midst. You tell us to give thanks to you always and for everything. We trust that you are at work in us, among us, and we ask that you would continue to, to minister to us by your spirit, that you would sustain us, that you would take us by the hand and keep us. We ask this as we come into your word in Mark chapter one, in Jesus' name, amen. As I jump into the sermon this morning, we're in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. They're called the Gospels. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the word gospel simply means good news message. And these four Gospels tell of the arrival of God's own son into the world to usher in the renewal of all things through bringing about the kingdom of God through his son's life, death, and resurrection. The four gospels together give us four different pictures, uh, perspectives on the world-changing events of Jesus's life and ministry. And it's interesting at times to see the different and complementary pictures that were given by the different gospel writers at different times and sometimes with different emphases. As you heard Britt read today's passage in 
Mark chapter one is in verses nine through 11. We're looking at the baptism of Jesus. Last week, Chase, uh, the newest Sojourn Houston church planting resident, uh, kicked off for us this new series in which we're gonna be looking at selected passages that walk through most of the gospel of Mark this spring. And in last week's passage, we were brought again to the wilderness. That's where we were in much of Advent in December. And this week, Mark introduces us to Jesus. Last week, Chase talked about John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Jesus. And this week, we come to the passage where Mark introduces Jesus to us. And the account of the baptism of Jesus is a special one. It's given to us in each of the four gospels. A lot of the stories only appear in one, one or two of the gospels. This is in all four of the gospels. And in each of the gospels, the baptism of Jesus is given a prominent and foundational role. As we'll see here in our passage for today, this is because not only is Jesus's baptism his first act, the first act of his public ministry, but it also provides the foundation of the ministry that is to follow. And so as we dive in together, there's three things that I want us to look at together this morning. First, we're going to ask the question, why was Jesus baptized? Second, we're going to look at the heavenly response to Jesus's baptism. And then third, briefly, we're going to look at what Jesus's baptism shows us today. So as we begin, when we come upon the story of Jesus's baptism, a question that almost necessarily comes to our minds is why? Why was Jesus baptized? When we think of baptism, usually we think of one of two things. We think of either John's water baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, or we think of Christian water baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptism into Christ and into his church. And at first glance, it doesn't seem like Jesus fits neatly into either of these two categories. With John's baptism, on the one hand, Jesus is the son of God who is without sin. And so he would therefore have no need of John's baptism of repentance for forgiveness. On the other hand, you've got Christian baptism, which is baptism into Christ. As the apostle Paul says in Galatians 3 and Romans 6, which doesn't seem to fit either because there's no indication that Jesus changed the nature of baptism at this point in his or John's ministry. But more importantly, it would be strange for Jesus to be baptized into himself. So it's an interesting question, why Jesus was baptized. It's one that I've struggled with actually for a long time as I've read the gospels. Was it a religious or political statement in which Jesus is affirming the ministry of John the Baptist? Did he go out to be baptized because that's what all the faithful Jews were doing at the time? Was there some sort of change that happened in Jesus as though his baptism was at the point at which he became the son of God? Was Jesus simply giving us a model to follow as Christians? None of those quite capture it. While I, I guess, kind of hesitate to admit this, if I'm honest, I, ha, I, for the majority of the beginning of my Christian life, thought that this was kind of an act. It was like Superman getting on an airplane. As I read, I thought Jesus had to know that he's the son of God, right? His mother, Mary, uh, gave birth to him as a virgin. Angels had appeared to Jesus' mom and dad saying, this is the Messiah, this is the one who is to come. And furthermore, Jesus had never committed a sin in his entire life. And we can't even wrap our minds really around what that would have been like. John's baptism is a baptism of the forgiveness of sins. We know he didn't need that. And so really, I just thought it was Jesus kind of identifying with the rest of humanity in a symbolic fashion. 
you know, since you guys need to do this and I'm your savior, I'll go ahead and do it too. That's kind of was my working understanding of why Jesus got baptized for a number of years of my Christian life. And as we'll see, I was actually part of the way there. But as we look at our text today, we're going to see it's much more rich and meaningful than that. Britt read for us just a moment ago, verses 1 through 11 of the Gospel of Mark um, to give us some context. But for now, let me just read verses 9 through 11. This is our passage for today. It's short. Let me just read these three verses. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So there's essentially two parts to this passage, two main things that happen. In the first part, uh, verse 9, Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. And in the second part, verses 10 and 11, we see this spectacular reaction from heaven in response to Jesus' water baptism. The heavens are torn open, the spirit descends, and God, uh, the father, expresses words of approval to his son. In answering the question of why Jesus was baptized, in this first point, we're going to zoom in on this first part, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So let's look at this for just a minute. Last week, Chase, I think, masterfully summarized for us the 400 years of silence that preceded the arrival of John the Baptist. The people had been oppressed by Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and all the while, they had these promises from God that the Messiah would come to bring justice and peace and the glorious reign of God on the earth. And then all of a sudden, this strange man appears named John. Uh, he's wearing, Mark tells us, clothes of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And each of these details points back to the Old Testament in a way that signals to the people that something new is coming. Something new is happening. Back in verse 5 of Mark chapter 1, we're told that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized. Something was going on and people were listening. And what was John's message? He's coming. So get ready. John wasn't the one who was to come. The one who's coming after him is the mighty one, the one who will baptize with the Spirit. And so John says, get ready. He's coming. And here, verse 9, we're introduced to this one. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is how Mark introduces Jesus for us. No details about Jesus' birth, his childhood, or his status in society. Simply, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. But as we look a bit closer, there are at least three things that I think Mark wants us to see in his introduction of Jesus. For the first two, we see a couple of contrasts that are both striking and I think quite deliberate. First, if we look at what has just come before this, Jesus is joining, like I just read a moment ago, a large crowd of people who are coming out to be baptized by John. And, we look at, and when we look at who is coming out, we see that verse nine, the first, pas- the first verse of our passage, and verse five actually stand in contrast. In verse five, we're told all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. In verse nine, on the other hand, we're told that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
And Mark's ancient readers would have noticed something important here. There's a bunch of people coming out to John from, Nat, from uh, Judea and all Jerusalem. But there's only one person who comes from Nazareth of Galilee. To give a quick geography lesson, ancient Israel was a tall, skinny plot of land with Judea in the south, Judah, Judea in the south. That's where the reference Jew comes from. And Galilee in the north. And then there's Samaria in between. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you may remember that the Jews would go around the land of Samaria. They would take an extra long journey just so they wouldn't have to encounter the Samaritans uh, where there was much enmity between Jews and Samaritans. But in addition to that, the Northern and Southern Jews didn't think very highly of each other either. Might sound familiar being in the United States. This likely dated all the way back to the division of the Northern and Southern kingdoms after King Solomon's death and while this wasn't necessarily, this wasn't nearly as uh, intense as the enmity between Israel and Samaria, uh, there was nevertheless real and mutual distrust between Judea and Galilee, particularly with respect to religious issues. On the one hand, you have Judea, which is the central province of Israel, and Jerusalem is the holy city. On the other hand, you have Galilee up north, which is an unpromising region, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a northern backwoods associated with disinterest in the law. And Nazareth is so insignificant a town that it isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. It was well established by the religious elite in Judea that no prophet could come from the northern region of Galilee, much less the Messiah. And so at first, it looks like Mark may be picking up on this theme. In verse 5, with Judea and Jerusalem in view, all of the people are coming out to be baptized by John. The Judeans know what's up. They're listening, they're ready, they're prepared. By contrast in verse nine with Nazareth of Galilee, only one representative is given. Out of the backwoods region up north, Jesus is the only Galilean mentioned by Mark who heeded John's call to the wilderness. But as we see in the tearing open of heaven and God's favorable response to Jesus' baptism, in a way that is quite contrary to what they would have been expecting. Mark presents us with only Jesus as the one who re receives the approval from heaven. All the region of Judea and all Jerusalem have been going out to undergo John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But only when Jesus comes, the lone representative from this rebellious region, only when Jesus comes do the heavens open the Spirit descend, and God the Father speak his words of approval. And this is the first thing that I think Mark wants us to see here. In this moment, not only do we see the perfection of Jesus and the Father's acknowledgement of him, but we see Jesus identifying himself with a rebellious generation that is in need of repentance. You see, all those from Judea and Jerusalem, from the south, the good place, so they thought, they had lived for generations thinking that it was the Northern Galileans who were rebellious and disinterested in the law. They proved themselves to be rebellious and disinterested and unaware of what God is doing. Their repentance is not accepted by God. Instead, it is the one from Nowheresville, Galilee, who proves to be the unique son who genuinely responds to the prophetic call to the wilderness. Jesus alone, representing rebellious Israel, comes with truly genuine repentance, putting to shame those who had thought of themselves as the genuine ones. The second thing I think Mark wants us to see is similar, and it also comes in the form of a contrast. In verse eight, 
John had told us that the coming one will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In verse nine, we see the coming one himself is baptized with water. Right here at the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry, as one theologian puts it, we see the enormous contrast between the baptism which the Lord is to perform and the baptism to which he himself submits. In verse eight, excuse me, in verse eight, being the one who will baptize with the spirit centers on Jesus being the giver of life, the one who is actively creating the people of God. In verse nine, in being baptized with water in John's baptism, this same giver of life places himself in the role of a humble penitent, receiving the sign of repentance. So taking these first two observations together, we see Jesus identifying with this rebellious generation and then humbling himself to receive the baptism of repentance on behalf of his people. And then the third thing of three that I want to point out for us in this, this first point, once again, is the location. You might think our sermons are starting to sound like a broken record. Where is all of this happening? In the wilderness. As we've seen numerous times over the past month, the wilderness is the place of new beginnings for the people of God. It's the place where renewal begins. And for our purposes this morning, it's important to note that the wilderness is where sonship is established by God. And therefore, where sonship must be reaffirmed. Back in the story of the Exodus, where Moses is sent by God to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt, that is the first place where Israel is named the firstborn son of God. Exodus chapter four, verse 22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. It is on account of this designation that God sends the 10th plague against Egypt, the plague of the firstborn that ultimately leads to their deliverance from Egypt. In the story of the Exodus, God sends Moses to deliver his people through which he brings them to the wilderness. In the wilderness, God consecrates them. He sets them apart and he creates a new people to whom he gives the covenant of the law. And it is from the wilderness that Joshua, Moses' successor, leads God's people through the Jordan River and into the promised land. That's the story of the Exodus. With the coming of Jesus, God once again sends John this time to lead his people into the wilderness. In the wilderness, John baptizes them, setting them apart, preparing them for the one who is to come, who will baptize them with the spirit, bringing about new creation and making them into a new people. And it is into the wilderness that Jesus comes to be baptized in the Jordan River, beginning a new exodus, a new journey from the wilderness into the kingdom of God. You see, John's appearance in the wilderness and his call to repentance through baptism in the wilderness signifies, as one commentator puts it, that the time has come when God will execute a decisive judgment from which a new Israel will emerge. And what is Jesus doing when he's getting baptized? In submitting himself to the baptism of John, Jesus acknowledges this judgment of God upon Israel and himself enters into it, taking the place of the guilty people. So why was Jesus baptized? In his baptism, Jesus identifies himself with his people. He takes their sins as his own and serves as the perfect penitent for them, the perfectly repentant man, but not for his own sins, 
Instead, this is for the sins of the whole world. The Gospel of John tells us uh, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, John says, this is him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There, the Gospel of John this time points us back to the Exodus also, and in particular, that points us back to the story of the Passover. When the plague of the firstborn passed through the land of Egypt, God's people were to sacrifice a lamb without blemish, mark their doorposts with its blood, signifying that the lamb died instead of their firstborn sons. In Jesus' baptism, we see the first of many ways in which Jesus is identified as the sacrificial lamb of God without blemish. God's own beloved son who would die on account of the sins of his people so that they wouldn't have to. Though he was God, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a humble servant, being born in the likeness of men so that he might become obedient even to the point of death in order to secure the salvation of his people. In the season of Advent, we celebrated the coming of God to be with us. The name that God has given, one of the names that, that Jesus has given is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here we see that Jesus didn't come just to be with us as though he's merely beside us, consoling us. No, Jesus enters into the very plight of our sin and, dis and carries it for us. As the theologian Adolf Schlatter once wrote, he associates himself with sinners and rages, ranges himself in the ranks of the guilty, not to find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt and his flight from the approaching wrath, but because he is at one with the church and the bearer of divine mercy. And so taking these three things that we've seen together, uh, all together from verse nine, we see that Mark has actually packed a lot in this minimalist introduction to Jesus. Here from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, we see that he's not an isolated individual who takes responsibility merely for himself and his own righteousness, but he actually shares the heritage and the predicament of his people. Why was Jesus baptized? It was an act of vicarious repentance, a taking on of the sins of the, of the world. Rather than setting himself apart from the sins of his people, Jesus identifies with this rebellious generation. The one who will baptize with the spirit humbles himself to receive the baptism of repentance on behalf of the people. And in heeding John's call and the coming to the wilderness, the beloved son of God has come to the place where sonship must be reaffirmed. In preparation for this new exodus, this new creation, this judgment from God, from which a new people of God will emerge. Which brings us to the second point this morning. Why, that's why Jesus was baptized. Now, what is the response from heaven to Jesus' baptism? Look at verses 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately Jesus saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In this section, we're given three key images the heavens are rent open, they're torn open. The spirit descends from heaven and God the father speaks words of approval over his beloved son. And these images are laden with references to the prophetic anticipation for the coming restoration of Israel. 
the heavens are torn open. This is a recurrent phrase that appears throughout the Bible to indicate a vision that reaches beyond the earthly dimension. This happens to the prophet Ezekiel when he receives his prophetic words. It happens to the disciple Stephen. If you're familiar with the story in Acts chapter seven of Stephen being martyred for his faith and then seeing a vision of God in the heavens. It happens when Peter is given a vision to mark the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. It appears in Revelation when John gets a picture of heaven. The picture of the heavens being torn open is a common image used to describe the heaven and earth meeting in a particular way. Even more than this being a general indication of a vision from heaven though, this harsh wording, the heavens being torn open, points us directly to a verse in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64, verse one, where speaking about the coming restoration, Isaiah writes this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. So we are in the wilderness, the place of new beginnings where Jesus, the son of God has come to submit to John's baptism, taking on the sins of the world and vicarious repentance. In verse 10, when Jesus comes up out of the water, immediately he sees the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, Isaiah had prophesied. And here the heavens are torn open. And what happens? God comes down. He descends on Jesus like a dove. The one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit is himself greeted by the Holy Spirit here in his own baptism. In the background here with the Holy Spirit descending from heaven, there's two main images from the Old Testament. The first is this picture of a dove, a bird, the Holy Spirit taking the form of a bird descending with fluttering wings. Brings us back to the spirit hovering over the waters of creation in Genesis chapter one, verse two, in the account of the creation. It also brings us back, brings in an image of divine protection. One of my favorite articles I've read actually about the Passover itself is by a theologian named Meredith Klein who looks at the Hebrew word for Passover and says that it could also be translated cover over. He sees avian bird imagery in the Passover feast. Uh, It's like the psalmist saying uh, uh, that we might hide ourselves beneath the shadow of his wings. As a mother bird spreads her wings to cover over and protect her young from the plague that is to come. And so with the image of the Holy Spirit descending here as a dove, we see the the image of new creation and of divine protection for God's people. And then the second image, which I think is as much time as we could have spent on the dove, this is clearly Mark's primary emphasis. The second image is the prophetic expectation of a messianic figure who is given the spirit of the Lord. As Jesus opened the scroll in that passage in Luke, behold, the spirit, is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. Isaiah chapter 11, verse two says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And just one more, Isaiah chapter 42, verse one says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
And that verse actually connects with the third thing that happens, verse 11 of our passage. The heavens are torn open, the spirit descends, and then verse 11, a voice came down from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This, I think, is where the full picture of Jesus' baptism comes into clear focus. Jesus has been obedient to the Father in his sinless life and in submitting himself to the baptism of repentance, taking on as the Lamb of God, the sins of the whole world. And in response, the Holy Spirit descends on him to remain with him over the course of his ministry, empowering him for his ministry. And at the very same time, the Father commissions him to undertake his God-given role in ministry, identifying him as the Son of God. So in this moment, of Jesus' baptism and the heavenly response. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, together at the outset of Jesus' public ministry in a way that ties together really two key Old Testament promises. The first is Isaiah 42, one, which I just read, and listen to it again with, that, with God's words to Jesus in mind. Isaiah chapter 42, verse one, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42 is a chapter that talks about Yahweh's servant, God's servant on whom he has put his spirit. This points toward Jesus's role as a servant, a suffering servant in fulfillment of the expectation of a servant like Messiah. The second key passage promise that this brings together is Psalm chapter two, verse seven, which says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm chapter two, in contrast with the picture of a suffering servant, Psalm chapter two is about the establishment of the king and the coming triumph of the king by the power of God over all nations. So that one points to Jesus's role as king in fulfillment of the expectation of the conquering Messiah. So in effect, Jesus' baptism resolves one of the paradoxes of Old Testament messianic expectation. If you take some time, I think this is actually widely available online right now, if you take some time and look at ancient Jewish interpretations and even present-day Jewish interpretations of the messianic passages, it's usually either one or the other. Either the Messiah is the conquering king or the Messiah is the suffering servant. And one of the most common present day, as one of my friends who's a rabbi tells me, one of the common present day Jewish interpretations of those two passages due to the paradox is that the suffering servant is talking about Israel as a nation and that the Messiah is purely a conquering king. That dates back to at least the second century BC, although it's probably uh, originates earlier. But here, Mark chapter one, at the baptism of Jesus, we see a resolution of, one of, of this paradox. Will the Messiah be a conquering king or will he be a suffering servant? Here, those two expectations converge on one man, Jesus, who would ultimately establish the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God on earth through his suffering as a servant. As we walk through the book of Mark together, we're gonna to see how difficult this paradox of Jesus, both suffering servant and conquering king is to grasp for Jesus's hearers, including his closest disciples. But here at the beginning of the gospel of Mark as readers of Mark, 
we are clearly identified, where we are clearly brought to an identification of Jesus as the Son of God from the very beginning. The Father, Son, and Spirit from the foundations of the world have had this plan in mind. And here they are, Father, Son, and Spirit in unity, launching together into the ministry that will save the world. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. So why was Jesus baptized? In a sense, Jesus' baptism was a baptism of preparation as well. The Son of God came into the world to live a sinless life and then present himself as the lamb without blemish so that he could take the sins of the world on himself. What was the heavenly response to Jesus' baptism? While many had been baptized by John here for the first time, the heavens are rent the spirit descends and the renewal process begins. The father looks at the son and spoke tender words of affection and delight. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. It's time for this salvation project to begin. And as I move into a brief third and final point, looking at what we think that Jesus' baptism shows us today, I think we see two primary things. I think we see how Jesus did it. And I think we see how we do it too. So look at how Jesus did it for just a minute. Looking at Jesus and his life in ministry, we're, about to, we're getting ready to walk through the gospel of Mark, which walks through some really incredible stories. Jesus from here, next week, we're gonna look at his temptation in the wilderness. And then from there, we're gonna see stories of him casting out demons, of him engaging with, with, uh, with satanic host, of him healing sick people, of him having miraculous uh, uh, revelations concerning people and their motivations. Jesus' ministry was one full of miracle and sign and power. And the question that we kind of come to is in that one, how did Jesus do those things? How is it that Jesus was able to do all of those powerful and wonderful things? Oftentimes we attempt to explain it as that was the divine part of Jesus that was doing those things. But then when he experienced suffering, when he experienced pain or when he experienced something that looked less like divine omniscience, we say that was the, that was the human part of Jesus. And often, if we start, if we actually take that thought process down to its end, what we unfortunately come to is the picture of Jesus who's kind of half God, half man. But what we realize is when we reconcile that with the rest of the scriptures, that actually is a problematic understanding. Jesus wasn't part man. When Jesus wasn't, when Jesus was baptized, he wasn't uh, pretending like, like Superman getting on a plane. Superman doesn't need to fly, but he's, you know, I'll, I'll fly on a plane just to be like all the people around me. Jesus was fully human. And as the perfect sinless human being, he was baptized to take on the sins of the whole world. Likewise, Jesus wasn't partly God. 
in, this is part of the mystery of the incarnation, as we call it, the mystery of Jesus taking on flesh, becoming a human. He didn't become partly God. He was fully God. He had set aside for a time his heavenly status and his heavenly form. But here we have fully God, fully man, Jesus. And so the question is, how did he do these things? If he was fully man and fully God, how did he do these things? The answer is here in his baptism. Upon Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and stays with him over the course of his ministry. How did Jesus perform miracles in the flesh? He was filled with and empowered by the Spirit. How did Jesus know things about people's hearts that he shouldn't otherwise have known? He was filled with and empowered by the Spirit. How did Jesus do these powerful things? He was in partnership, God the Son, under the authority of God the Father, with God the Spirit, living, fulfilling this messianic ministry of power, pointing to the salvation that had come from heaven for the whole world. So how did Jesus do these things? He was filled with the Spirit. How do we do the things that God has called us to in the scriptures? The answer is very much the same. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we're told, is the Spirit that now resides in those who are united to Christ by faith. You could continue that with a list of things. It's the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same Spirit who empowered Jesus to heal the sick. It's the same Spirit who empowered Jesus to comfort the weary, the mourning. It's the same Spirit that empowered everything in Jesus' life, that very same spirit fills those who are united to Christ by faith, uniting us to Christ and with Christ. The apostle Peter says it this way in an incredibly mysterious but wonderful way in 2 Peter chapter one. Peter says, God has granted to us all things. God has made us partakers of the divine nature. That's the phrase, 2 Peter chapter one. God has made us partakers of the divine nature. And how can Peter say that? It's because we have been filled with the spirit. We share in union with God through the filling of the spirit. And this work of the spirit begins in our lives with repentance. When they were called, the people of God could not truly repent in the flesh. They were not yet filled with the spirit. The spirit had not been poured out on all flesh like Joel had prophesied, like, other, that, like Isaiah had prophesied. The spirit had not been poured out in its full measure. And so when called, the people could not truly repent and Jesus took their place as the perfect repenter, the perfect penitent. And this is good news because Jesus's perfect repentance was on our behalf too. For us, repentance, perfect repentance of every sin we've ever done is not something that you and I need to do. Repentance is not a work that we do in order to earn God's favor. Repentance is a response to the Spirit's work in our hearts. When God humbles us and brings us to him, we walk lives of repentance as a gift from the Spirit. And it's not just repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but repentance that leads us, as the Apostle Paul writes for us, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. In Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God came in power, and that power was the very presence of the Holy Spirit. 
And the one who led in the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the one who also baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' baptism with the Spirit descending upon him signaled something new. The restoration of Israel was nothing short of a new creation. The creation of a new people made up of people, men, women, and children who have been made new by the power of the Spirit. A people who are being made into the image of God. And to close with this picture, just a moment ago, we, we saw how Isaiah chapter 42, verse one is in the backdrop of the father's words of approval to Jesus. But listen again, this time I wanna just read Isaiah chapter 42, verses one through four. Listen to these words. This is the prophet Isaiah talking about the coming ministry of Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is the life that Jesus modeled in his life and ministry. And it's the life that you and I are empowered to live in the spirit. Jesus is chosen and loved by God. In Isaiah, we read, behold my servant in whom I uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights. In Mark, God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased. In Christ, friends, brothers, sisters, you and I are invited to be those who are beloved by God in whom the Father takes great pleasure. Jesus is humble and repentant. Rather than asserting himself, he bears with the needs of others. In Isaiah, the Lord comes to the bruised reed, to the faintly burning wick, in order to bring forth justice. In Mark, as we'll see, Jesus submits, as we've seen, Jesus submits himself to carrying the sins of the people. And then empowered by the spirit, we're going to see him come near to the bruised, the faint and the sick to bring healing and hope. So too, are you and I not only comforted, but made into comforters for those who are faint and weary and weak. And also Jesus does this in a non-confrontational way. In Isaiah, we're told that this coming one will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. In the gospel of Mark, we see the picture of a gentle Jesus. He goes to war, very confrontational with Satan and his host, but is gentle with sinners. And at the end of his life, as he stands falsely accused, Jesus stands silent. And so too are you and I invited to engage gently, humbly, and quietly demonstrating a confidence in a Lord who will come and restore the world, not us on our own. That is truly a confidence in the Lord that is truly otherworldly. And this is paradoxical. Just as for the Jews, it was paradoxical that Jesus was both the conquering king and the suffering servant. This is paradoxical even to our own hearts. It's hard for us to understand and grasp. If you try to play by the rules of the world, you will be understood by those around you. That's not confusing. If you grab for power, if you raise your voice, if you swing your fist, 
you'll be understood. But if you play by the rules of the kingdom that is not of this world, as a peacemaker, gentle in the face of harshness, you will be misunderstood, but you will taste glory because there you will find the person, Jesus, who came to engage with you and me gently and lovingly. And it begins right here in the wilderness with humility and with fire. In naming the fact that maybe we are a smoldering wick in need of God's love and gentle nearness to us. This is where the spirit can meet us and bring us into new life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this is where we are today. Thank you so much for speaking to us through your word, by your spirit, about Jesus, who Jesus is today, what Jesus did in his life and ministry, and here how Jesus' ministry began. Thank you for showing us that the model that Jesus gave for us isn't impossible for us to follow because we have been filled with the very same spirit that empowered Jesus to do those things. So Lord, I pray that you would draw near to us in this time, that you would minister to us in this room together today. Please humble us, Lord, where we need to be humbled so that we can come to the place of repentance, of acute awareness of our need. And I pray that this message of a gentle Jesus who will not break a bruised reed and who draws near to blow on the faintly smoldering wick. Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement to us as a church and an empowering message of a God who loves us and welcomes us to join with him in the renewal of all things. We love you, Lord, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.